Welcome to the Worship Place Podcast. We are thankful we can worship with you and pray this message blesses your day. We look forward to seeing you in person next service. I want to turn our attention to the book of Job, chapter number 26 and verse number 14. See, these are the parts of his ways, but how little a portion is heard of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Now, this is, uh, I don't know, I believe it is a prescient insight into the operation and the relationship that God has with his people. So I want to focus on that phrase, these are the parts of his ways. And we're gonna look at some parts. Um, Who was it that says all the world is a stage and every man a player and he's cast for a part, sometimes doesn't even know what he's playing? These are the parts of his ways. I wanna talk about life in pieces. Let's ask God's blessing. Precious Lord, we thank you for the power of your spirit. We pray that the hand of God would minister in the house tonight, that we would be uh, filled with wisdom and understanding. In the mighty name of Jesus, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much uh, for standing. You may be seated. Let me begin by saying the Bible is not a comprehensive tell-all book. Now, I know we preach and we say that if you have, if you need answers, the answers are in the Word of God. That is true. Uh, It's true, especially for the, I don't know, let's say the elementary parts of uh, our relationship with God. But let me also say that when you learn your Bible, you're not just learning well, when, you're, when you are a student of, the, of God's a disciple, being trained by the presence and the word of God, it's not just about learning what the Bible says. You also discover that there are things that God teaches you that aren't said. Remember the the writer John said, if everything that Jesus said and did were put into books, all the world would not be able to contain uh, the instructions and the wisdom and the insights. Now, since I said something provocative, I think I need to kind of give some kind of evidentiary support here. So I said the Bible doesn't tell you everything. As a matter of fact, it said very little to the children of Israel concerning the mystery of the Gentile church. You would have to be a prophet in the Old Testament to be able to even catch a glimpse. And the glimpse would be in in type and in shadow and in metaphor of the notion that there was going to be another people that there was going to be something greater than the people of Israel. 
So the mystery that was hid from ages and generations. Colossians 1.26 and verse 27 says this. The mystery which has been hidden. Hidden. Not revealed, not until later times, but originally hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So for most of Israel's history as a nation and as a people, they were blind to the prospects of a Gentile bride. It was hidden from them for ages, for generations. And it was be made manifest in the days of Jesus and, of course, the days of the apostles from the day of Pentecost forward. And so I, I want to say that Israel was deliberately kept in the dark concerning that. And guess what? The New Testament bride doesn't know everything either. They asked Jesus, tell us, what will be the sign of your coming and what will be the time of your return? And Jesus emphasizes over and over again, no man will know the day nor the hour. So if someone comes into your life and says, I know the day of the Lord's return, you better walk away. Now, I've seen some pretty smart people write some pretty fascinating books that were intriguing, to say the least, but they proved to be wrong. And nobody has gotten the date right, and of course, no one will be able to get the day or the hour. We're going to have to be satisfied with the times and the seasons. And just to know that uh, the, the coming of the Lord is in the air, do, do I feel like the coming of the Lord is in the air? Yes, I do. Would I go as far as to say uh, that I feel like the Lord will come in my lifetime? I believe he will. Can't, I can't guarantee that, but it seems to me that that's how close we are to the coming of the Lord. But to know the day or the hour, that has been kept from us. Sometimes not only do we live in in, in times of ignorance of certain things. Remember, we're talking about the parts of his ways. And so, not only do we live in ignorance sometimes, sometimes we pray in ignorance. Furthermore, the Bible expects us to come into seasons of our prayer life where we don't even know what to say. Is there anybody that feels like you've said it about every way it can possibly be said? Especially if you have a long-standing goal, prayer goal, that you need God to do this. And the mountain hasn't moved. And you pray, you pray supplication, intercession, gratitude and thanksgiving, uh, you know, worship and praise. You confess it, you profess it. You even contested it. And, and, and then you just, you just, here you are. The Bible says there would be times like this. And in times like this, we need to understand the power of praying in groanings 
The Bible says, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit, this is Romans 8, 26, it helps our weaknesses. We don't know how to pray as we should or as we ought, but the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So there are places in our walk with God where not only do we not know what to say, when we do speak in the Spirit, the things that we say we don't understand because these are groanings and these are spiritual utterances that we don't understand with our ears. Praise God. So we're talking about how the Bible does not promise to answer everything, but it leaves us in this suspense of needing more information. Am I the only one that could use a little more information? (laughs) Information in the Word of God is parceled out on a need-to-know basis. You know why you don't know everything? You don't need to know everything about everyone about every situation. This is why judging and condemning others to hell is a dangerous game to play. Because, listen, 1 Corinthians chapter number 4 and verse number 5, and this is in the NLT, and I picked this specifically because of, I don't know, it brings clarity. Judge, you know the scripture in King James says, judge nothing before the time. Well, in in NLT it says, so don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise, and I suppose whatever condemnation as well, would be due. So be careful not to heap condemnation on somebody else because of the mistakes they've made, because you made some too. Only yours nobody knows about yet. I, uh, Paul, and I, I mean no disrespect, but he, he practiced the Sergeant Schultz way of Dealing with his brother, he said, I purpose to know nothing. Save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Sometimes, literally, um, I choose to do that in preaching and teaching because I don't want to look out here and see what everybody's problem or issue is. If I did that, number one, I'd never have to study again. I would never need notes. They would be right in front of me. Uh, but uh, I, 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 find I, I find it's better to accidentally, you know, hit the target in the spirit and not deliberately operate according to the arm of the flesh. So, so, so it's, it's a mistake to, to judge others ahead of time. Secondly, it's a mistake to desire someone else's life's experience. So I want their money. Okay, well, do you want their money problems? Do you want their bills? 
How do you know? Do you want their lifespan? Was this famous uh, gospel singer? I think Toby Keith is a gospel singer. I mean, he just passed away at 62. He, he, he's at least a, I don't know what he is. But so don't take my word for it. I think he sings God and country kind of songs, maybe country. But what I'm saying is you can be a celebrity. You can be a king of England. You can have just be just getting just getting the throne broke in. And now you got a cancer diagnosis. So look, you don't know. I wouldn't want to be a king and then a king with cancer, would you? So you don't want somebody else's life. Because you don't know what's going along with that or what is to come, all right? So we see the parts of his ways. God sees the whole. And uh, whenever, and the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Now, a word for that is called synergy. Now, synergy is not high-powered sinfulness. Synergy, <laughs> synergy if that was the case, we might have some of it going on in here. But, but synergy is when the sum is greater than the parts. This happens in the world of chemistry. It happens uh, uh, in, in various sciences and, and so forth. But uh, I think it happens in relationships because, you know, two, one plus one, a man and woman comes together, falls in love. Then there's something called a marriage, right? The marriage is, a, is synergistic. It's greater than the individuals. The individuals will make sacrifices. They will endure um, hardships sometimes together that otherwise they might be able to escape. But they'll do it because this power, this thing called a relationship is, uh, is, is greater than the two people involved. Amen? Same way with the church. The, the sum is greater than then the parts, thank God you're a part and I'm a part, but the church, the church triumphant. Say, do you believe in predestination? Well, I don't believe that individuals, individuals can count on being predestined to glory, but I do know there's something called a church that I read about in the book of Revelation, and the whole is going to make it. Our job is to be part of that number. The church triumphant will not be defeated. It will make it. It will win in the end. That's why you want to be a part of the church of the living God. Hallelujah. Now, one of the, uh, one of the uh, in versions of Scripture says, it says that these are the parts of his ways. That word parts, the Hebrew word, can also mean edges. These are the edges of his ways. And... Um, Sometimes the edge is a pretty good place to be. I mean, the edge of a Cracker Barrel pancake, in my opinion, is the best part of the whole thing. Especially if it just comes off the griddle. It's got a little crispiness around there. I mean, who doesn't want a little bit of crunch, right? How about the back edge of a slice of cake? Come on. You want to know why they cut cakes like this and not like this? Nobody would eat them if they were cut like this. You got to get that. You got to get the frosting. You got to get that. You got to get the surface. 
The more surface area you have on a birthday cake, the better the celebration. That's what I say. Praise God. The edge of a knife is what defines its utility and usefulness. As a matter of fact, you try to cut down a tree with a dull axe, you're going to wear yourself out because the edge is what makes the difference. Praise God. I'm glad I want to be on the cutting edge of the realm of the spirit. That's where I'm going to go with this, amen, that we, we can't just be a blunt church, a dull and ineffectual congregation, but we need iron sharpens iron. Hallelujah. The Israelites were in a precarious situation in their history under King Saul. Not only did they not have any weapons, but the instruments that they had were farm tools. Now, you can do some damage with a pitchfork or with a, you know, a hoe or a, or a, a pick or something. But they had to take their farm tools to the Philistines to get them sharpened. Turn to your neighbor and say, anybody got a file in here? Come on, I hear, I hear, I hear they slipped files to prisoners and the next thing you know, they broke out of the jail. Have you ever tried to file through a piece of metal? Well, I guess if you got all the time in the world, you just keep hacking away at it. Well, let me tell you something. We can sharpen ourselves in the realm of the spirit so we can break out of predictability, the mundane, the church as usual, and enter into a realm and dimension of the Holy Ghost and fire. Hallelujah. <clears throat> it's time to break out of the ordinary and get into the edge of God's presence. So living on the edge, I want you to notice this. Uh, uh, the, prodigal, the, the prodigal's father, of course, this is God, was living on the leading edge of evangelism. If you'll remember... When the prodigal son made his turnaround, before he could ever get home, daddy was already at the perimeter, at the periphery. And he was waiting and watching. And he met that returning son in the field. Long before he ever got to church, there was an encounter. I think we need to remember this, that many times when folks just come to our services, we have no idea what kind of encounter they might have already had before they even get here. Don't disappoint them. Be ready and able and willing to, to help them penetrate, amen, and be free from whatever it is that they've come to get deliverance from in Jesus' name. But the Father was living. I want you to catch this. He's living at the edge of the property line. And it's the leading edge of evangelism. He was a leader, not a manager. Let me say, the diff there's a difference between a leader and a manager. They're not the same thing. Uh, leaders cast vision. Leaders are several steps ahead. Managers keep everything orderly and organized. And the operation to operate efficiently. I'm not saying they're not needed or necessary. They're just different. But the father was several steps ahead of everybody on the farm. And he saw the need immediately to restore his prodigal, long-lost son into fellowship. No questions asked. No poll needed to be taken. 
Amen. He knew that this was the thing to do. And he hugged him and he kissed him and he said, get the robe, kill the calf, start the party, bring some shoes. Let's clean this kid up and let's celebrate. And so he saw the need for restoration. Now, the elder brother was the manager. Remember, he was even told, all I have is thine. So the manager sees his younger brother as a threat to the established system. I've got this all worked out. I know how everything's supposed to operate. I wasn't prepared for this. Well, we better be prepared to have our theological apple carts up us turned over sometime. We need to be prepared for suspicious looking individuals to come through the doors, get the Holy Ghost, be delivered, be set free. Come on. He said, I only want the kind of visitors that look like they got their act together. Well, I don't think that's what the Lord's looking for. He's looking for the kind of visitors that are desperate for something that will change their lives. And so the manager, he said, we don't want this kind around here. He's going to just mess everything up. So consequently, when the leader, the father, said it's time to celebrate, the manager, the elder brother, could not understand the value of throwing a party for a moral failure. If we celebrate a moral failure, will that, will that not encourage other people to become moral failures? so they can be celebrated too? Well, it's kind of a distorted form of logic, but I guess if you're carnal, you might think that way. But God doesn't think that way. God celebrates those that are recovering from disastrous life conditions, not to encourage saints to go wrong, but to encourage others who are captives of hell at Satan's will to get a hope in their spirit that says if God can deliver them, he can deliver me. Oh, hallelujah. Put your hands together. See, to the elder brother, the system was more important than the soul. I thank God for the church. I thank God for the choir. I thank God for the preaching of the word of God. I thank God for the facility. But it's not more important than the soul. If the things that we have prevent us from reaching the souls, then we'd be better off without them and reaching into this world of darkness to help somebody. You need to come to church to get what you need. But getting what you need is not just a feel-goodism but it's to get empowered to go out there and bring help to people out there who need what you have. Praise God. Come on, somebody. I, 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 I got to. And so, and so because the elder brother valued the system more importantly than he did the soul, he would not go in. He would not go to the party. He chose rather to shudder in the night, separated from the celebration, Proving some kind of a point that I'm a better uh, man than he, and it is, should be me that gets the party. <laughs> Hallelujah. Look, if you haven't ever, first of all, there's a party thrown in your honor every time we have church service. You just you need to remind yourself that you're going to have to celebrate. 
There's an old song, it's my party, I'll cry if I want to. Well, if that's your attitude, amen, the Spirit's going to pass you by and fall on somebody who's grateful for the opportunity to lift their voice, clap their hands. Actually, every sermon is for you. You, You're like a switchboard operator. You're so busy plugging in, oh, that's for so-and-so over there. Oh, that's a good point. They needed that. What about you? Come on, every time we come to the house of God, we can have a word, a fresh word, a fresh anointing, and have an encounter. This is just for me, hallelujah, and I'm going to celebrate this moment. These are the parts. So, so, So when you see the parts of his ways, you're getting closer to the core of his glory. And I feel like, we're getting closer in the book of Job. What we see is, is how these parts lead us from the circumference to the center. All right, you ready to take just a little journey with me? Let's look at the story of Job and look at some of the parts of his ways. How about part number one? When bad news comes in such rapid succession that the bearer of the bad news gets interrupted by the next bearer of the bad news before he can even finish telling how bad it is. The Bible, over and over it says, while he yet spake, here comes another one. Job, just wanted to tell you, your children were at the elder brother's house. They were partying and they were having a feast and, and the house fell down on all of them and they all perished. And while he yet spake, Job, here come another one, Job. The thieves came and they took the camels and the oxen and everything you had in your garage is gone. Well, he yet spake. And so here they came, rapid. I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that's ever seen days where the bad news came in such rapid succession that I didn't even have time to process it. Can I tell you, these are parts of his ways. If God would allow the best man on planet Earth at that time to have wave after wave after wave of discouragement and defeat and difficulty and theft and loss, then who are we to think that we're exempt from that possibility? These are parts. This is the part when bad news comes. But let me tell you something. When hell won't, I feel this so powerfully. Hell will not give you a break unless you demand one. Somebody needs to shout, shut up, devil. Give me a break in the name of Jesus. I'm not going to take another wave of bad news. I'm going to take a praise break, and I'm going to stop the succession of disappointment with a worship in the presence of the living God. Hallelujah. You can turn the tide of difficulty if you'll lift your voice and magnify the Lord and tell the devil to shut up. How about the part where you celebrate your way right into a crisis? Here the children are. We're not necessarily being told that they're uh, just, just evil minions. Job was worried about them, but they're just having brotherly and sisterly fellowship and some kind of a festive occasion trying to laugh and have a good time, trying to celebrate. The next thing you know, the roof falls in on them. I know that's never happened to you. You shout all over the church and church is over and you get in the car and someone cuts you off in traffic and you want to cuss them out or something like that. <laughs> or you have this great angelic countenance all over you in the service and then 
before lunch is finished, you and your wife are squabbling. And you're saying things you wish you wouldn't have said and shouldn't have said and feeling ways you shouldn't feel. Hello? Do you think, look, you're going to have to realize this. Hell cannot stand it when you're having a good time in the Holy Ghost. So he's going to try to throw a wrench into the middle of the action anytime he can. But we are, we're not ignorant of the wiles of the devil, the machinations, the tricks, the bag of tricks that he carries to try to foil us whenever we're having a good time in the Holy Ghost. How about the part where your stuff gets stolen? Did I ever tell you about the $300 box of cereal that I lost? Man, what kind of cereal was it? Gold nuggets? No, it was a box of ordinary cereal with 300 bucks in the lining. We were traveling. That was the only safe we had. You pull the liner out. You put the money in the box. You lower the liner. Works great until you finish the cereal. Then you throw the box away. Then you go, oh, trash day was yesterday, and it's gone. Say, oh, you had a credit card. No, we didn't. Oh, you could get an advance on your check. What check? I'm here to announce I want my stuff back. Job was told everything you own is gone, brother. Sorry, the thieves came and they took it. Maybe, maybe somebody has suffered some losses tonight, and, you, and, and all you can do is replay the accounting of everything that you had that you don't have anymore, the joy you had that you don't have, the peace you had that you don't have now, the hope you had that you don't have now. It's time to command, amen, the enemy to let go of your stuff and give me my stuff back in the name of someone lift your hand right now I want you to take it back in Jesus I want my stuff back I want my joy I want my things I want my revenue I want my family I want my stuff back in the name of Jesus yeah you're all every one of us are going to go through that part where we lose something that's very very valuable to us and I hope it makes a warrior out of you. How about the part where your best friends transfer the worst doubt? Best friends are fantastic until they start talking junk. Look, if you go over to your friend's house and they have a, and Papa John's just dropped off a pizza and you've been fasting and you ask them, hey, do you think I ought to break the fast? What do you think they're going to say? You picked the wrong time in the wrong place. Has anyone ever experienced the part where out of the mouth of the people you love and trust and know, they call them friends, things come out of them sometimes that just wreck your faith? Job had th three friends, and every time they opened their mouth, it was one discouraging and disparaging and accusatory and demeaning. Uh, speech after another. Sometimes people you love transfer doubt. My wife has a famous phrase, cancel it. 
You know, sometimes you can speak doubt and not know you're saying it because you're on autopilot and it's coming out of you. And you, we need to do each other a favor. Whenever we speak things that, um, that we know don't con concur with the word of God, you need to cancel that. You say you're broke. You're not broke. You want to know broke? Go downtown. Go under the bridge. Yeah, well, they, the Lord knows what it means. Well, the devil hears it too. And the Lord could be offended by that kind of talk. How about this? I'm blessed and I'm getting stronger, more blessed every day. But we can, we can do that and, and not uh, realize if you're not careful, you can choose other people's definition of who you are. You cannot afford to be defined by what other people say about you. Number one, your mama's going to make you look so good that you could do no wrong. That ain't true either. You need to look in the mirror and you need to see, ask yourself, well, who does God say that I am? You need to cast down labels. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Who are we to tell God who we are when we are made in his image and we are destined, to, amen, to, to flank him on the throne? We're going to rule and reign with him. Oh, hallelujah. It's time to be who God says you are. We should also... You know, we, we all believe and we teach and we practice here that there are people that come to God with wounds, spiritual wounds. Wounds sometimes that happen when we were small children and we carry them with us. And oftentimes those wounds get in our way. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. And we develop defense mechanisms when we're small, right? Some, sometimes we use a sense of humor. Other times we use uh, uh, athletic excellence or academic excellence or some other way that we, we want to show that we have value. Uh, sometimes we just retreat into ourselves. Whatever mechanism that you used as a kid growing up to help you survive school, okay, when you're an adult, those things get in your way. And when you're in the spirit, they really get in your way because those things have to be healed. But watch this. The Holy Ghost said, okay, so you're doing pretty good about believing that God can heal wounds that were inflicted upon us when we were children, but we're having trouble believing that God can erase labels that bring limitations that other people have put on us. Things like, I'm not good at math. You're not good at math because you say you're not good at math. If you wanted to learn the math, you would be able to do it. You can write you can read, you can draw, you can work, fix cars, you can build houses, you can make dresses, you can do what you set your mind to do. We must believe that God can strip the labels that limit us, that other people have, or we put them on ourselves in the name of Jesus, hallelujah. I have been with preachers preaching revival and heard it come out of their mouth. This is a burnt over field. We can't have revival. We grow a little bit, then we go back down. And they don't know what they're saying, but they put a label of limitation on themselves. There is no limit to how many people God can send through the doors of this church. If we break the ruling forces, those that are commandeering,
engineering pressures in our city and bring those principalities and powers down. This building will not be able to hold what God can send through these doors. Does anybody believe that with me in Jesus' name? Okay, let me hurry. The part where when God does show up, he takes the form of a tornado and he scares you. Look at this. Job's wondering where God is. I looked on the right hand. I looked on the left hand. I looked behind me. Finally, he has an encounter about what, 38 chapters, something like that. It's almost near the end of the book, God shows up. Now, if you were Job, and now a whirlwind comes out, and you say to yourself, uh-oh, this is the very same kind of thing that took my son's house down and caused all my kids to die. Now it's coming from me. Hey, let me tell you about the part where it looks like God's your enemy. Oh, no, can that be? Job 19 and 11. He also kindled his anger against me and considered me as his enemy. Job 33 and 10. Behold, he invents pretexts against me. He counts me as his enemy. Job 13, 24. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Watch James 4, verses 4 through 5. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God that when you're a friend of the world you're God's enemy whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God or do you think the scripture says in vain the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously watch this I love this but he gives more grace therefore he says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, I want you to see the context. These are adulterers, adulteresses, worldly, carnal, engaged in the affairs of this life and posturing themselves as to make themselves the enemies of God, but God's answer to our apostasy is he gives more grace, and then he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. He's talking to the same people. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now look, if an adulterer or an adulteress and an enemy of God can repent and submit and get more grace and put the devil on the run, what in the world do you think a friend of God should be able to do? What I'm trying to say is this is a job for grace. You want to know why you try to fight the devil and you can't get the victory? You're doing it in the spirit of pride. You cannot do it in pride. You have to do it in humility. You have to do it in repentance. You have to do it through grace. When was the last time you ever took grace up against the enemy and armed yourself with grace and say, in the name of Jesus, I plead the blood 
Hallelujah. Come on. This is a, you know what I feel ringing in my soul? This is a job for grace. This is a job for grace. If grace can take those that are way out there and turn them into devil chasers. Woo, my. Then there's the part where you asked, where God asked you to do for others what you wanted others to do for you. Job needed a friend. But God asked the man who needed a friend to be a friend. Job would have liked for his friends to have prayed for him. But there's the part of his ways where he asks you to do for others what you wish others. There comes a time in your life where you're going to be asked to be nice to someone who's not nice to you. Or you're going to ask to love somebody who doesn't love you. Or to forgive somebody who doesn't want to forgive you. Yeah. Job prayed. <laughs> and when, you, when, you, when, you, when God has the confidence to, to bring this part, remember, these are all parts of his ways. He's got a lot of hopes for you. And finally, there's the part where God restores what was lost and reconciles all the misunderstandings and gives you a double portion. And you're able to look back and say, everything I thought I knew about God was just hearsay. But now my eyes have seen him, and I'm enjoying the favor and the blessing and the power. That's when you get the hole at the end where he reconciles. There's coming a day where there's going to be a reconciliation of all things. And there comes times in our life where he reconciles all of those irregularities, all of those misunderstandings, all of those disappointments and difficulties and you can look around and say, hindsight is 2020. You can say, now, had, had it not been, what did David say? Had I not strayed, I, I, I wouldn't be able to appreciate what God has done in my life. Sometimes you have to go through some stuff in order to appreciate the whole. I want us to stand. So these are... These are parts. These are parts. And all of us are experiencing a part of his ways. I want us to lift our hands and I want us to pray that God would bring us to that place of resolution. It's not always going to be up in the air wondering who took my camel, camels. Why did my kids die? Why are my friends treating me so bad? Why do I have to love others who don't love me? Why is God asking me to do things for others that nobody's doing for me? There's going to come a day where God's going to reconcile it all. Hallelujah. Precious God, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Let's lift our hands right now. Pray that the word, God will give you a word concerning your situation. 
in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Why bankruptcy? Why did I have a divorce? Why did people betray me? Why did I fail when I wanted to do so good? It's not over yet, brothers and sisters. These are parts. You're in a training program. He's making something powerful out of you. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Precious God, stay in his presence just a minute here. I feel like the Lord wants to just help somebody gain some understanding. Precious Lamb of God, we, we thank you for your power and for your spirit. Precious Lord, you're worthy of the highest praise today. We honor you and we magnify you tonight in this house. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Give us our stuff back. Yeah, it might have lost. You lost something, but you didn't lose it for good. It's coming back. And it's going to come back, amen, anointed with a glory. It's going to make you appreciate it. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 Jesus, 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 we thank you, Lord, for your power, for your spirit, for your mighty anointing. In the mighty name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, right now. We lift our voices and we anticipate, Lord, this breakthrough. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, hallelujah, take me to the leading edge. These are the edges of his ways. Take me to the edges, hallelujah, hallelujah. I want to say this, there's fragments all around you, and those fragments are going to lead you to a greater glory in God. You just got to experience them. Take them up one by one, and as you see these pieces of God's plan, amen, they're not complete, they're just parts, but you just appreciate them, live through them, grow through them, and it's going to take you to the next level. Hallelujah, hallelujah, precious God. Does anybody want to get, does anyone want to get from the circumference to the center from the periphery to the core, from the edges to the middle. Lift your hands right now and thank him. In the name of Jesus, we thank you right now, Lord. Take me to the center of your will. Take me to the middle of the big picture of what you have in Jesus' name. Help me understand that all of these experiences are not in vain, that they're all part of a stepping stone and a process to take me to where I need to be in you. In Jesus' name. 